I'm Aaron Hinkin. Welcome to Life in the Balance, a monthly radio show here on WYPR where we dedicate each episode to one person's life story. We hear that person share his or her own story in their own words, and we listen to the chapters of that story along with social thinkers and policy folks who bring the larger issues around that person's life into focus. Some sobering statistics as we start our show today, every 100 minutes, a teenager takes his or her own life. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for young people ages 15 to 24. And about 20% of all teenagers experience depression before they reach adulthood. In fact, teenage anxiety and depression rates are worse than ever before. Some say because of the constant influx of social media that can end up having a corrosive effect on young people's self-esteem. The numbers are important, but they're abstract. So let's put a face to those statistics. Today we're going to meet a young woman named Joelle. She's 17 years old. She goes to Bard High School Early College in Baltimore City. We met her through the organization Wide Angle Youth Media. That's a nonprofit that teaches youth film and radio production skills. Full disclosure, by the way, I do a lot of volunteer work for Wide Angle Youth Media. I think it's a great organization. I really admire the young media makers in Wide Angle, including Joelle. Uh, Joelle, as you're going to hear, has gone on to make a documentary film about her own experience with depression, a powerful film called Void. Joelle says when she was a teenager, she was a sensitive kid and shy. I didn't, like, talk a lot. And then when I did talk, I would just, like, cry because, like, I didn't really know how to, like, stick up for myself because I didn't know how to, like, get out there, talk to people. And the friends that I did have... I didn't have a lot of friends, but the friends that I did have, we were, like, close. But, like, when you little, you don't really, like, know how to, like, spread out your attention, if that makes sense. So, like, once, like, new people started, like, coming into the, like, group, me and, like, and that friend would, like, split apart and stuff. I don't think I can remember, like, when I first heard the word. I just, it always stuck with me because, like, whenever, like, something happened to somebody, they'd be like, oh, I'm depressed. Or, like, you hear, like, in the TV and stuff, or they'd be like, I'm just depressed right now and stuff. Meaning, like, I always thought it just meant sad. Everybody gets sad, so I didn't really, like, think about it that deep. 17-year-old Joelle talking about her first brush with the concept of depression and listening along to Joelle's story with us is Dr. Karen Swartz. Dr. Swartz is Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Her area of expertise is in the diagnosis and treatment of mood disorders. She's actually featured in Joelle's film, Void. And uh, Dr. Swartz, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So, Doctor, we hear Joelle say everybody gets sad. Let's do some basic definitions. What's the difference between getting sad and depression? Well, I think we have the challenge she highlighted. We use the same word to mean a universal experience we all have, being disappointed, sad, grieving. So negative emotions that everyone will have to some extent. And we use that exact same term to use a kind of medical illness that's potentially life-threatening. The thing that's different about depression is that it's not just change in mood or your feelings, but there are other physical symptoms that come and a really profound change in how you feel about yourself. And so it's not just, I feel sad or I'm disappointed, that you also can't think, have distorted thinking, feel very negatively about yourself, and can't function. 
I know you're already acquainted with Joel's story. Pretty normal childhood. Um, some friends come and go, relatively stable family life. Um, and I think maybe some people assume there has to be some kind of traumatic moment uh, for a teenager to experience the onset of depression. Um, not necessarily true. Uh, to t- Talk about that a little more for us. Well, I think we'd like to think there's a traumatic trigger because that way we would have more control. I think that parents like to think if someone's having a good childhood or has had a happy home life that they're protected. That would be like saying if you have a happy home life, you could never have asthma. (laughs) The idea that being happy, being supported, having friends protects you from medical problems just isn't realistic. Depression's more complicated than that. It's a biologic process, and sometimes there are triggers that come out of life, but sometimes it comes right out of the blue. And some people are, I guess, just more predisposed to it than others? Every one of us probably has a different biologic vulnerability, meaning that we're born more or less likely to get depression the same way we're all born more or less likely to get high blood pressure or asthma or any other medical problem. All right, back to Joelle's story. Here's how she describes her own experience of depression. When I'm going through, like, a depressive episode, I feel numb in a sense. I don't really feel anything. Like, I can't necessarily feel anything. If someone's talking to me where I hear, like, a funny conversation, like, it's funny, I want to laugh, but I'm not feeling anything. And, like, that's, like, how it feels, like, when I have depression. Like, I feel alone and I start to cry and stuff. Those are, like, external emotions that people can see, but, like, on the inside, like, I don't really necessarily feel anything. Dr. Karen Swartz of Johns Hopkins, is that a pretty textbook description of depression? I mean, do you hear this often from the folks you work with? Absolutely. There are a whole group of people that describe having a lack of feeling. Some people feel irritable and angry. Some people feel intensely sad. And many say they just feel nothing. They are disconnected from their feelings and don't have many positive or negative emotions. I think something else Joelle is pointing out here is the, is the gap between how she acts and what she feels. I mean, how people might understand that she's sad if she's crying, but there's no way to really convey that feeling of emptiness. Um, How important is it for people to explain to their friends and their family members what they're going through and what kind of advice have you got um, for folks to talk about it? Well, it's critical that people talk about how they're feeling. There's nothing about the way you look or even necessarily behave that would let someone else know that you're depressed. If you are going through other medical problems, you often can see. You know, you look pale. You seem to have a fever. There are things that are clues. With depression, it's such an internal experience that you really do need to share for others to be able to help. The challenge, of course, is that many people don't understand much about depression. And so you might say something about it, and you might get back from a friend a very unhelpful comment like, you know, I've been depressed. Everyone gets depressed. This kind of depression is more And it's serious. And so I think people understanding that this is a possibility is important for them to really be able to be supportive and helpful. It's interesting that you say that uh, as we go back to Joelle's story now. Joelle did try to confide uh, to her mom about her depression. But um, as you suggested, she found it pretty difficult to convey what she was going through. Um, Here's what she remembers about those initial conversations with her mom. It was was a struggle at first because she was just like, 
everybody gets sad and stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, everybody gets sad, but this is like a constant sadness. And like on top of that, I'm tired. Like I don't have like motivation to do stuff. I go to bed early some nights, you know, like affecting my schoolwork. I'm like getting a little, I get irritable. Somebody could like say something to me and it's just like this inner like anger that I have now. Like it's just like a lot of stuff going on. And, like, these are, like, also symptoms of, like, of depression. Like, I need help, you know. So, at first, it was, it was like, very, very, like, hard. It was, like, talking to a brick wall, in a sense, because she didn't, like, I guess didn't want to believe that I had depression. So, it sounds like there's some denial from Joelle's mom, some dismissiveness. Um, Joelle seems, at this point, to recognize that she has a serious problem. Uh, she knows she needs help. She's trying to reach out. And her mom's a lovely woman, by the way. She's in Joelle's uh, documentary film. It's clear that she loves her daughter. Um, at this point, she just doesn't happen to cue in, right, to the red flags that are being presented to her here. Um, Dr. Karen Swartz, talk about this exchange and the things that can go right or wrong at a moment like this when a teenager comes to her parent with this sort of issue. One of the biggest challenge parents have is not really understanding enough about depression to take it seriously. Given the choice between thinking, well, my child's having a hard time or they're they're having a little bit of a rough patch versus they have a potentially life-threatening illness, they're not going to choose the second. They want to think that they're okay and that it's going to pass with time. The average adult doesn't know much about depression, and so they're not recognizing the signs. She just gave a beautiful description of so many of the symptoms that young people have, but you can write them all off. You can understand them all, and that's the problem. The way we make a diagnosis is to look for those coming together and staying. But I would say most parents aren't armed with the information to say, oh, my goodness, this is the serious kind of depression. Right, because it's like a cliche that teenagers are depressed. Teenagers get written off as being a big pain or they're depressed or they're moody or these other things. They're actually great. You know, I really enjoyed my time that I spent at Wide Angle Media. These are great, energetic kids. But I think that it's easy for adults to decide that if they have any kind of negative emotions, it's just related to that chapter in their life and it will pass. The problem is you could be having someone going through a very serious situation and you're just waiting for it to pass and putting them in danger by not taking action. Let me give you a hypothetical, Dr. Swartz. If you could have met Joelle's mom before those conversations happened, what kind of advice would you have given her about how to... Uh, notice what's going on, how to negotiate that exchange? Well, the first thing I would have given her mother is knowledge, because I think that having in your mind the option that there's a medical problem that's a common among teenagers, where they have changes in their mood, where they're irritable, where their sleep, their energy and concentration changes, and then they're faced with being much more negative about themselves, she would have at least seen it as a possibility that there was something going on that was more than just being a teenager. The other thing I would say is to then ask questions, to find out how long it's been going on, how much it's impairing, if it's led to changes in how someone's performing in school, how they're getting along with their friends, and then paying attention to how they themselves are getting along with their daughter. You know, is the the parent has to say, is she different with me? Now, of course, there are changes that teenagers have. They're different with their parents when they're 15 than when they're 10, but not that kind of irritability and negativity all the time. I mentioned a statistic at the top of the program uh, about teen depression, that it's on the rise. Um, 
Is that uh, true in your experience? And if so, what, what do you think is behind that socially, culturally today? We do have evidence that it's true, unfortunately. And so we're trying to understand it. I think it's very multifactorial. I don't think it's as simple as social media, although I think that contributes. I also think that there's certain conditions that just become more prevalent over time. It's certainly a genetic condition. So when you have families that have the condition having children, they're go- that's going to be part of the picture too. So it's a combination of genetics, stress, almost certainly social media. So at this point in Joelle's story, she's, as we heard, not getting through to her mom. She knows there's something wrong. She needs help. Um, what kind of advice would you give Joelle on her next move at this, this point? Well, I think that there are a couple things you can do. One is to get some information. And that's the great thing about the Internet. There are plenty of negative things, but there's good information. You could go to your school counselor and ask that person for him or her to give mom a call and say, we're worried about this. Sometimes coming from an outsider or professional, that would be able to start a conversation in a different way. You might ask, could we go see my pediatrician together if that's someone they have a relationship with and have that conversation. She was in a remarkable position of figuring it out herself and trying to advocate for herself. Unfortunately, I don't think most teens have that kind of insight. And so they don't know what's going on. And so they often have someone from the school or other activities bringing their concerns to them and then their parents. It often goes in that direction. Dr. Swartz, you are ensconced at uh, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, but uh, you also do outreach programs and go into high schools uh, yourself to, to teach kids about depression. Yes, a team of us at Johns Hopkins have developed the Adolescent Depression Awareness Program. It's a high school outreach program where we educate students and their parents and teachers about depression. It's been my experience that most prejudice comes from ignorance, and so we're really trying to fight the stigma of depression with good, high-quality education. We're going to hear more of Joelle's story in just a few moments. Uh, In the meantime, Dr. Karen Swartz, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. I want to thank you for listening along to Joelle's story uh, with us uh, here on Life in the Balance. You're welcome. Coming up, Joelle's depression continues to get worse. She's home by herself one day during a holiday break. She takes a bottle full of pills. We'll hear what brought her to that point and how she managed to move on from there. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin. Today on the show, we've been hearing the story of Joelle. She's a 17-year-old high schooler, pretty typical teenager in most ways. She likes being with her friends, downloading apps on her phone. She's looking forward to pursuing a career as a filmmaker. But she also suffers from clinical depression, an illness that's now affecting 20% of teenagers in the United States. In our last segment, we touched on the fact that kids are growing up on the Internet and on social media, for better or worse. And uh, as a digital native, Joelle has some astute insights on the subject. An advantage to me would be, like, with social media, you have a platform. You know, you have a following, people who want to hear, like, stuff that you have to say. So it's so easy for you to, like, get like get attention. And, like, some attention can be good. Like, you can, like, raise awareness Along with that, like, people like to spread knowledge of things. So that's how I learned about depression, like, being more. And, of course, like, along with the Internet, you can, like, look up stuff from professionals and stuff. You can get educated on the topic. And, like, with that, you can go, like, spread that to, like, your following. A disadvantage is because you have a following, anything that you say, 
they can eat it up. It's so easy for you if you have like a following to like be a bully and say like a messed up thing about somebody because then like your following can go and take that thing, spread it around, create more like negative things about a person. And that can really like take a toll on the person like they're talking about. Listening along now to Joelle's story is someone well acquainted with the unique struggles of teenagers when it comes to mental health. Andy Masters is Youth Health and Wellness Coordinator with the Bureau of Maternal and Child Health of the Baltimore City Health Department. That's a long title, Andy. Uh, <laughs> talk about what you do as a Health and Wellness Coordinator with the Bureau of Maternal and Child Health of the Baltimore City Health Department. Sure. My um, role is really to bring together partners across the city, public and private agencies who are really interested in supporting young people ages 6 to 19. There's a lot of great work happening in Baltimore to support these young people. However, it often happens in disconnected and siloed ways, different organizations who have great uh, initiatives and strategies, but they're not connected with other folks who are doing really similar work. So under the youth health and wellness strategy, my goal was to bring those folks around a common table and facilitate conversations amongst people who are working either in education or in workforce development or trauma and resilience, and ideally bringing people who are working both within the same um, field, but also across fields. So doing work, bringing doctors together with school leaders to have a conversation about how do we work together across those lines to um, really make sure young people have access to everything they need. Ages 6 to 19, that's a pretty mm -hmm. big window. Um, Joelle uh, is 17. Let's mm -hmm. focus in on adolescent mental sure. health. Talk to me about uh, the internet, about social media, about bullying on those platforms specifically. How much of a big deal is that? That happens a lot. Our um, young people talked a lot about that. They talked about the fact that bullying looks different from boys and girls, that, um, you know, boys are often much more physical, that the challenge is about the physical appearances and the bullying about clothes and the different ways that they wear their clothes. Um, sexual orientation is often a big target with boys. With girls, it's much more interpersonal. It's much more um, about their relationships with other people. It does include a lot of conversations around physical appearance and sexual promiscuity, but it really can happen not so much in a physical way, but in an interpersonal way. And in that way, uh, social media is really um, huge in how that can happen. And it also takes a sense of anonymity or the lack of having to sit here face to face and say something to you. Um, I can post something on Twitter. I can post something on Facebook. I don't even have to tag you for all of my friends to see it. And it, it just becomes um, spread across the school and across our shared friend groups. So you've got this online harassment pressures from social media that can be a serious issue. And then you've got old fashioned in-person interactions as mm -hmm. well, which obviously can be just as damaging. And that's exactly what we're going to hear now uh, from Joelle in this next portion of her story. It was like in the sixth grade, and I remember like alone, like with my sadness, like I was having like suicidal thoughts, and I told a friend that um, I was like, "There's like voices in my head that's like saying like I should like kill myself," and I remember him saying he was like, "You should," and I was like, "What is wrong with you?" He was like, "Oh, it's a joke. It's a joke," and I'm like, "That's not something that." it's okay to joke about no matter what it's not okay to joke about like suicide and stuff so like I was like you know distraught when people like another thing like words hurt it sticks with people and that's like something that stuck with me for the longest just oh you should kill yourself like that's 
this is something that stuck with me and like it did trigger a lot of the um negative things words hurt says Joelle, and listening along to Joelle's story with us is Andy Masters, Youth and Wellness Coordinator with the Baltimore City Health Department. Andy, um, this part is hard to hear. Joelle's friend says he's joking, uh, but he's talking to a severely depressed girl, and she takes him seriously. Uh, her wor- His words stick in her mind. What sort of sensitivity training or just simple awareness needs to be happening in schools so that, you know, teenagers might make a declaration like, I'm going to kill myself and have it taken seriously. So we found that schools are really important um, hubs in the community, and they can be really important. Just having that one caring person, one caring adult in a school is really critical, not only for improving um, overall academic outcomes, but also improving student attendance and some behavioral health outcomes. However, a lot of our adults in and around schools, they're not prepared to have this conversation. They don't have they were never taught how to appropriately respond when a young person that they care about comes to them and says something that can be jarring. Um, Some of our parents and our community folks, um, they really struggle to understand that this is a real thing and, and there can be some denial. And there's a historical narrative in the black community that mental health problems are kind of a white person's thing. And so there's a real aversion historically to seeking treatment and seeking help. That narrative has begun to change in recent years, um, but fighting that narrative can be a a real challenge. And I imagine as hard as it is for adults to kind of wrap their mind around taking that sort of uh, talk seriously, Mm -hmm. um, it's that much more difficult to get peers, your classmates, your friends in school to to play a positive role as well. Young people are often a little more willing, I've heard, to talk to their friends about those things. They're a little more attuned to that. Um, young people live shared experiences with other other young people. I haven't been in high school for quite some time, so I don't really know what it's like to sit in a classroom as a young person and um, have just broke up with my girlfriend or boyfriend and have a struggle where I don't know where I'm going to get my meal tonight or I have no idea um, if anybody's going to be home or if I have a home tonight. But if I can talk um, with a group of friends and my friends are able to just be there for me as a support system, um, there's a balance between having adults who have the lived experience to be able to support um, kids and teenagers, but also having a really strong peer network and peer support group that it, that is there with you right now and can encourage you. Um, Baltimore City Schools has done a lot of work in this area, um, along with um, folks across the state of Maryland. So there's a program called Cognito that actually they have an, a, a school staff training module. It's all online and it teaches school staff how to identify challenge, behavioral health challenges and warning signs and how to respond appropriately. And Cognito also has a peer-to-peer module where um, it works through in an avatar-based program, getting young people familiar with um, how to identify those concerns, how to respond when a friend of yours says something that may be um, challenging or may be indicating that they need to talk to somebody. It also helps young people and teachers figure out how do you get from identifying and hearing something that's concerning to actually talking with a young person about asking for help and doing it in a way that is responsive to what they're saying. 
an avatar-based program, you say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's all online, and um, it walks you through, and it, it gamifies, you know, helping young people understand what to do because that was something that we've heard over and over and over again is I hear my friends say these things, and I just have no idea what to do about it. I don't know what to say, and I really don't know where to go. Um, one of the most important things that's come out with, um, you know, Logic Song um, recently is the National Suicide uh, Prevention Hotline. But even in Baltimore, we have a crisis response line that receives over 45,000 calls annually for people who are looking for behavioral health help. Um, you know, they're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, we have the uh, Baltimore Child and Adolescent Response System that does similar things, but really targeted for um, kids and adolescents. What's the number? Um, the number for the Crisis Information and Response Line is 410-433-5175. Um, so again, that's 410-433-5175. And they are 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. All right, we're going to turn back to Joelle's story now. This, as you're about to hear, was a real pivotal moment for her. It was It was like the day before like New Year's Eve, so we was on break. And I remember like waking up that day, like I knew it was going to be like a bad day. Like my mom wasn't in the house and like I was like having those thoughts. And again, like my friend, well, she's not really a friend anymore, but like the person who like said like, like you should kill yourself, like that was like something that I thought about. And when you're already in a messed up state and like you experience something like that, it's like it's not good. There's like no coming back from it. So and then on top of that, I didn't really like go see my therapist because we only had like a certain amount of like appointments. So I didn't really have no one to like talk to you about it and stuff. So it was like that hole that I was trying to get out of. I just fell back in it and so I had like some allergy medication and it was like three fourths like full and I just like took all of them. And I remember like my stomach was hurting like really, really bad, but I was just like, I, that, like, I didn't want to be alive. Like it was like a very tough thing. And, but the pain like hurt a lot. So I called my mother and my mother, she was angry. And I guess like, it was like out of fear because like of what happened that like she was like mad and like I just couldn't understand like I'm going through it like why are you yelling and stuff Joelle remembering the day she attempted to take her own life she ended up in the hospital uh, with her understandably confused and very upset mother she was stabilized and then she went on from there to a short-term residential mental health facility a place that she says uh, was not very helpful in her recovery Uh, Andy, here is a teenage girl clearly very seriously affected by her depression. Uh, We quoted a statistic in our introduction to the show. Every 100 minutes, a teenager commits suicide. The rate of adolescent suicide has been growing every year since the early 90s. Um, Talk about this in a larger sense. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among teens and adolescents. So suicide is um, really an issue that needs to be taken seriously. It's an issue that um, the health department, um, along with city schools, behavioral health systems, Baltimore, the Department of Social Service, and other partners across the city are really looking to understand um, what's happening in Baltimore around suicide. We have a very low number of deaths by suicide in the city. Um, Only 13 young people have um, died by suicide. Um, in the last 
five years. Um, I will say that those are confirmed by suicide. It's really challenging um, for an attempted overdose or an overdose death to confirm if that was suicide. You can't confirm intention. Um, one of the striking things is that the overwhelming majority of those deaths by suicide are African-American males of middle school age. So we are seeing um, our deaths by suicide are really young and they're, they're um, African-American boys. Yet there, there is no, we don't see a lot of suicide notes. We don't see a lot of um, explanation as to what's happening. And yet these types of things are happening increasingly more. So in Baltimore, according to the 2015 Youth Risk Behavioral Survey, um, th we had about 29.8% of our high school students who took that survey um, reported feeling sad or hopeless in the last 30 days, um, which is pretty, pretty relative across other urban areas similar to Baltimore. And yet, in following that question, 18.7% of young people who took that survey, high schoolers, said they've attempted suicide in the last 30 days. Now, that number is very different from other urban areas. So, for example, Philadelphia, that number is 11%. So, in, in Baltimore compared with Philadelphia, um, in the District of Columbia, just down 95, um, that number, 18.7% in Baltimore, is 12.7% in Washington. So, we're seeing different in how our young people are responding to depression um, with other areas. And that's something that we want to look at and see how through the youth health and wellness strategy, through the child fatality review team, and through our partnership efforts with city schools, the behavioral health systems, and others across the city, how do we provide better resources and better supports for our young people so that um, when they're struggling with behavioral health challenges, that they're able to have access to the treatment, the services, and the supports that are done in a way that young people really um, can engage in. I guess it's important to think also about the fact that once a young person connects with those supports, mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean the problem is solved. There's Depression isn't uh, a situation that has a necessarily a quick fix mm -hmm. solution. It may not have an endpoint at all. I'm going to uh, turn back to Joelle's story now. I'm trying, like, whenever I get the urge to, like, do something like that, I don't because, like, I saw how badly, like, it hurt my loved ones. Do you still have those thoughts and impulses? Yeah, yeah I do. But, like, I feel like that's something that's not necessarily going to go away. It's like you can, like, push them back, but there's going to be, like, once or twice in your life where you just want to, you know, die. Andy Masters' depression and mental health is an ongoing struggle for uh, many people, adolescents and adults. Uh, what's the best thing you can do in your role at the health department for people like Joelle? I think it's important for everyone to realize that depression and other behavioral health concerns are in and of themselves very isolating. And so they often will result in people um, secluding themselves, sort of withdrawing from social interaction. But it's important for um, family members, for friends of, of young people, especially young people that struggle with behavioral health concerns, to maintain that positive and supportive contact to, um, you know, for family members to work with a young person's providers to be able to create a plan of support. From my role at the city level um, and, and across the public and private spheres, it's really bringing um, together the folks that are doing this excellent work and trying to find ways to be more innovative, to try to find ways to 
to um, connect in a broader way. There's almost 8,000 young people um, being seen through the expanded school-based mental health program. And yet there are 84,000 kids in Baltimore City schools. And so how are we, you know, continuing to build on the strong work of all the school social workers, the school psychologists, and the community providers in city schools to really create a network of support that expands beyond the school walls, that expands to reach those young people who are not connected with school, those young people who, for a lot of reasons, have um, disconnected from different schools. My role in bringing folks together is to really create this strategic plan and this approach that um, that braids together all of the resources that are available through the public sector with the really um, important community-based and grassroots organizations that are providing services and supports for young people in a way that is youth-friendly. Andy Masters is Youth Health and Wellness Coordinator with the Baltimore City Health Department. And uh, Andy, uh, keep up the good work and thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you very much. Coming up, Joelle turns her experience with depression into art, into a film called Void that she hopes is going to teach other kids about the realities of mental illness. That process and what she learned, coming up. Welcome back to Life in the Balance. Today on the show, we've been hearing the story of 17-year-old Joelle who has struggled with clinical depression. Joelle has recently gotten involved with the organization Wide Angle Youth Media. She's learned how to shoot and edit video, and she's taken her own story and turned it into a documentary film, a film called Void. It's a remarkable documentary, and here to tell us more about Joelle's work and the role that art and media can play in healing is Tia Price. Tia is workforce development and high school manager for Wide Angle Youth Media. And Tia, welcome to the show. Thank you. First off, tell uh, tell us a little bit about Wide Angle Youth Media. What does the organization do? What's your role? So Wide Angle is an organization that works with Baltimore City students ages 10 to 24, and we teach media. We teach graphic design, photography, video, which is what Joelle was doing. Um, and the most important part for me, as I am doing workforce, is that we provide pathways for young people. So ideally we work with young people from the time that they're 10 years old. We work with them through middle school until they get into high school, from high school into college. And then I wanna stick with them uh, through internships or through our apprenticeship program, um, giving them meaningful work opportunities. Hopefully they'll come back and teach for us or be guest artists, Um, but we're all about pathways and workforce pathways to meaningful employment. You talk about workforce development, uh, making people employable. I mean, there's any number of ways to make someone employable. What's important specifically about learning how to make media? What's important is you are learning how to tell your own story and tell it in a way that people want to (laughs) listen. I tell my students all the time, even though I don't teach video, uh, I tell them, you know, people have a very short attention span. They have about 15 seconds. (laughs) And then after that, you've lost them. So it's whether it's you're talking about a personal story about you battling with depression or talking about a new project that you want to take on and you're looking for funding, you need to know how to grab people's attention and keep them for the amount of time that it takes for you to get your information across. And so that skill, learning how to tell a story, whatever it may be, will go with them as long as they are um, pursuing their careers. How big is the program? Who's invited? Who participates? How do you decide who gets involved? So our program is 
a little complicated um, because we have so many movement moving parts. But if you want to get involved with our middle school program, which is where we hope that, that all folks start, um, that is at our library sites. We partner with Enoch Pratt Free Library. Um, and then um, after you finish that program, you come to our workforce development program over the summer in which we partner with YouthWorks um, in Baltimore City. Um, and then after that program, it's a long pathway. We come into high school. and high school, we have design team and we have um, our video team. And those are s students from all over the city um, and some that are not in the city, although we, we like having mainly city folks. Um, but they come from every high school. Some are homeschooled. And then after that, they transition into our fee-for-service production uh, for hire program. And that is usually students that have gone through our full program. So this isn't something that uh, students sign up to do for a weekend. You have students who are really in it for the long haul. Oh, no. Yeah, they're, they're in it for the long haul, especially once they get to me. They have to interview. Um, and then after they interview and write their essays, then they're, they have to stay with us for the whole year. It's a commitment that they have to make. Tia, tell me more about Joelle. Do you remember uh, when Joelle first started? Talk about who she was when she came into Wide Angle Youth Media and maybe... Uh, sort of who she's become during her uh, time and her work in the program. I remember exactly the moment that Joelle came into our program. Um, she was with her mother and Brooke. And Brooke, we should say, is a very <laughs> close friend of hers who ended yes. up being a co-producer on her documentary. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And um, they were together, and I wasn't sure because they... Um, I, I was like, are these students? I wasn't sure. Um, and so I was, because it, our office space holds a lot of different nonprofits. And so I, I was thinking maybe they were employees somewhere else. <laughs> um, but they said, oh, we're here for Wide Angle. And I was like, well, come back. And they kind of kept to themselves for a long time um, until um, Joelle had the opportunity to, to share her story. When they started being able to work on their personal narratives, that's when Joelle really um, began to come to life and really own her own um, her own being in that moment. It's interesting that she came with her mom as well. We've we've talked about her mom in mm -hmm. earlier segments of this program, uh, conversations, difficult conversations mm -hmm. that Joelle had that maybe didn't go as well as they could have when she was talking to her mom about her own depression. Her mother is actually featured very prominently in her film, Void. And I want to turn back to Joelle's story here for a minute. Joelle told us a bit about what it was like to, to include her in that project. It, w it was awkward because the person asking her the questions was me. So it was almost like we was having a conversation, but like she couldn't like she couldn't really address me um, as she normally um, could. Like she had to talk about me like I wasn't there or something like that. So it was like very awkward. Um, and to hear her side of everything was like a lot. I don't know, like, especially coming from a parent, because like, a parent doesn't really, like, they always have to be, like, strong in front of you, and they don't really, like, tell you what's going on. I learned some stuff about my mom that I didn't know before, and so it was, like, very touching and stuff. Tia Price of Wide Angle Youth Media, we hear Joelle say she learned a lot about her mom during this film. Um... What do you think? Do you think important conversations like that are, are, are easier or more difficult to have in the context of a film or a project? How, how can that work uh, for better or worse? I think that those conversations, at least in the case of Joelle, um, that conversation was very well done via film. 
And I don't think that the medium of film itself is the, is how is the reason that that storytelling was so successful in bringing Joelle and her mother together. Lori is her mom's name. I think the reason it was successful more so was because the team that addressed Joelle's story with care. I made sure to speak with Joelle's mom, Lori, and talk with her about how she was feeling because we are a youth media organization. We place a lot of emphasis on youth voice, but the youth would not have their voice if the parent wasn't so diligent in bringing them to our program each week. Um, and so we had a conversation behind, behind the scenes. The, the actual storytelling helped, uh, and the actual making of the film helped a lot to bring Joelle and her mother together. But I think the behind the scenes work that all of the staff had some part in really helped to help for Joelle to see just how much that story has impacted her life life of her mother and how um, it can be a story that can change lives for both of them. Joelle really put herself out there in this project, mm-hmm. but so did her mom. Yes, I mean, that absolutely. Was, I, I sh- we should let listeners know where they can go and see, that you can go online and see Joelle's film Void. Yes. How do, they, how do they find it? So they can go onto our website, Wide Angle Youth Media, go under the watch section um, and you'll see our video list. You can also look at Wide Angle's Vimeo page and find it there. Um, and be looking out for places in the community. Um, we're always open to suggestions, and we are trying to put this film out as many places as we possibly can. Joelle chose to do a very personal project. Talk about some of the other projects that students do in wide-angle youth media um, and the kind of impact that those projects have had on their lives. Last year, when they were working on the film Void, they also worked on another film um, about, it's called A Community in Chaos, It's talking about the impacts of violence that happens in Baltimore City um, and the impacts violence has specifically on youth. And so through the making of that film, it wasn't a personal story that was featured per se. It was lots of stories that were tied together. Um, But there was one student in particular that came up to me after the film, and I didn't know, who brought up issues of domestic violence that happened in the home. And he wasn't planning on sharing that story in any way. But because everyone had been so vulnerable, he allowed himself to go there, um, talk about that story, and it has brought up um, further discussions. Um, But this year, they're also, um, other than just the community violence film, um, you know, we continue to make films every year, um, and we have kind of a a pattern for how things go. So the first year they make, first semester they make 90-second shorts, the second semester it's short docs. Um, So right now, all of our students um, are working on 90-second shorts about why Black Lives Matter. And Joelle has come up with a really, really amazing piece about how she has learned to love her blackness. All of our films are about learning to understand oneself and then um, making media to help others to do the same. Talk about the relationships, uh, the camaraderie that develop between the students, the youth that are working on these films. I mean, they're learning about themselves, but as you say, they're sharing a lot with each other in the process. Mm -hmm. I would definitely say that we have a a tight-knit group of students. Um, If there's someone that's absent for the day, everybody's like, where is this person? (laughs) Um, I've not seen that in other settings as, as much. Um, I think it's because they have learned so much about each other, and it's all about supporting. There's such a strong community at Wide Angle, um, and whether it be someone getting all A's on their report card or someone doing well in a sport, 
everyone is so supportive and it's really a unique environment, but I think it's because of the storytelling that we do. I want to turn back to Joelle now. Uh, she had some words of advice um, for others who are, who are thinking about making a project you know, similar to hers in the way of, of, of sharing a personal story. Sharing your story, you're going to feel vulnerable and it's going to be awkward. And you're getting out of your comfort zone sharing it. But at the end of the day, you're doing it for a good cause because the people who listen, they can identify with it. And they can make a change in their lives, um, in another person's life. The small thing that you did can make like a very big impact. Tia, talk about what it's like to hear Joelle share that advice and to think about who she was when she walked into the wide-angle youth media door uh, the first time and who she's become now and just sort of how much she's changed as a person as a result of the work she's done. I... Of course, we all are so incredibly proud of Joelle. All of our students come in and are afraid to talk about those moments in which they were so vulnerable. And to see them, every class, come back and share a little bit more and share a little bit more. Once they see that students, their peers, are so receptive and are able to learn so much from their stories, it's like a new person almost emerges. And they realize that there has been this power. We don't empower them. There is this power that is in these students that has been there all along, and they are just now getting in touch with it. And it is amazing to see what that, having access to that power can do and what Joelle will do with it in the future as she continues to hone her skills um, and the lives that she will change through uh, the power of storytelling and through being able to share some of her most vulnerable moments. Tia, the young people who are in wide-angle youth media are uh, avid consumers of media, digital media, in a way uh, that no generation before has been. Um, Talk about the influence of that media diet, for better or worse, and how it changes the equation once you learn how to make your own media. This year, uh, our students are really learning about how media has shaped who society sees them as. So our theme is why black lives matter. And so we're learning about archetypes of, of black folks in media. We're learning about um, we're learning about how black women feel. And Joelle is really focusing that on this year, um, really focusing on some black girl magic. But when you are shaped by what society thinks of you, sometimes you don't realize who you really are. Um, And I think that our students are very aware of that. And so they're learning how to craft their own narratives and put out there, hey, I know that this is how you see me, but this is who I am. And having access to that type of power to show a different point of view, a different side of the world is is quite incredible. Um, And I know that it has meant a lot to Brooke, Joelle, and Joelle's mom. Joelle's documentary project is a video project. Mm-hmm. Um, at Wide Angle Youth Media, it's not just video. Talk about the range of media that is included. So the best way to explain that is to talk about our um, summer intensive. 
So we partner with YouthWorks, and we had last year, it was our first uh, workforce development program in which we had 30 plus, probably like 34 Baltimore City youth all at our office, and we were learning lots of different media um, because all of it goes into creating your video. So we learned graphic design. We learned how to do a podcast, kind of like what we're doing right now. <laughs> we learned um, photography, street photography, infographics, lots of different media, um, all that's in the creative cloud, and taught how those can lead to an eventual career all through um, all through media. You're tuned to Life in the Balance, and we've been listening to Joelle's story here along with Tia Price, workforce development and high school manager for Wide Angle Youth Media. Tia, I want to say thank you for the work that you do, and thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Joelle's documentary film about her experience with depression is called Void, and uh, I want to say you can find it on the internet. Watch it at wideanglemedia.org. Joelle hopes that uh, any educators who hear this show, by the way, uh, might consider showing this film to their students. The final words this hour are going to go to Joelle, who we thank for her own openness and willingness to share her story. We asked her what she would say to someone who is struggling with depression. Those thoughts that you're having, they aren't true. If you feel like alone and that nobody really loves you, that's it's not true. It's like your mind like playing tricks on you because you have people that care about you. The feeling that you're feeling right now is so small compared to like the good times that you're gonna have in the future, and that you just need to like stick around. Talk to somebody. Like you need to talk to any person that you can, whether it be a school counselor like a teacher, like a friend, like anybody that you feel you have a good relationship with, um, talk to them about it. And even if you don't really, like, feel comfortable sharing, like, your feelings with another person, there's always journals, there's, like, hotlines that you can call trying to kill yourself. It's not It's not really going to fix anything. It's just going to hurt the people that you love. The good outweighs the bad. Life in the Balance is an original production of WYPR. The show is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. We want to thank Wide Angle Youth Media for connecting us with Joelle and collaborating with us as we research this program. You can listen back to this episode at wypr.org slash lifeinthebalance. And you can reach us with your thoughts and questions at lifeinthebalance at wypr.org. Life in the Balance airs here on WYPR on the first Wednesday of the month at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Aaron Hinkin. Thanks for listening.